Let's pray. Father, indeed, glory to your name. You, the Almighty One who sits above all, the creator of the universe, the giver and sustainer of life, our Father and our God, we give you glory. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for sending your Son who came and died on a cross for us, who shed his blood so that uh, we might have redemption. <clears throat> we might have his righteousness reckoned to our account. And Lord, we thank you that he, your son was victorious over death and he reigns supreme today. And Father, we're reminded in the book of Jude that you take your sovereignty seriously, you take your holiness seriously, and there's accountability on the part of humanity and its reaction or relationship to it. Guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to the book of Jude. If you're just joining us, we are looking at this little book nestled in the New Testament. It's second to the end. If you get to Revelation, you just went a little too far. So back up and you'll find Jude. It is a short, brief book. Well, again, happy Mother's Day. Aren't we grateful for our mothers and all that they taught us through the ages? I, my mother, yes, oh, I didn't expect to applause, but yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, my mother taught me logic. She said, because I said so, that's why. I was very grateful for that lesson. My mother taught me about the weather. This room of yours looks as if a tornado went through it. My mother taught me about anticipation. Just wait until your father gets home. You've never heard that, right? My, my mother taught me irony. Keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. And my mother taught me religion. You better pray that stain will come out of the carpet, right? <laughs> well, Jude has some lessons as well. To, and they're not from moms. In fact, they're, they're not from any reputable group. They're actually from very savory characters found in the Bible. And he uses them as lessons for us living here in the church today. And this Jude's age quickly applies to us as well. The church is under attack. And as we had mentioned a few weeks ago, as we started this journey in this little epistle, and that is Jude was going to write about their salvation, the glorious salvation that we have in Christ. And he says, however, upon hearing that false teachers, ungodly teachers have crept into the church, he says, I, I'm changing the course of action in my writing of this letter. We noticed that early on in the first part, well, as he went to verse 5, he starts to lay out the false teachers. And he, we looked at last week, he gives us a diabolic trio, these examples from the past to compare them to the present-day ungodly teachers. He uses the Israelites from the time of the Exodus. He says they blew it. He mentioned the angels that left their proper domain. And you can sort that out, right? We, we, we walked through that. And then he looked at some Gentiles, those citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, all of these groups held their fist at God's authority. He said, no, we're going to do it this way. And God says, no. 
And they led the people down the wrong path. So Jude, when he's done describing those three groups, he then gives a present description starting in verse 8. This is what we looked at last week of these false teachers, these ungodly men and women who are in the midst. Now, keep that in mind. These aren't people from the outside attacking the church. They still have that. that wasn't, they're not excluded from that. <clears throat> and in Second Peter, the false teachers have a foot in the door. Now in Jude, they're sitting at the table. In fact, we're going to look at today, they're sitting at the love feast. And we'll talk about what that is. But they're sitting at the table with them. And so that cancer has crept all the way in. And so today, he's going to give us another three examples, this time of individuals. He's going to look at Cain, he'll look at Balaam, and he'll look at Korn, and we'll look at Korah, and we'll look at those here in a minute. But notice how he starts verse, uh, we'll start at verse 11. Woe to them, for they, again, them as the false teachers, for they have traveled down Cain's path, and because of greed, have abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. Hence, they will certainly perish in Korah's rebellion. These men, and now he gives us six descriptors. Notice, they are a dangerous reefs at your love feast, feasting without reverence, feeding only themselves. They're waterless clouds, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, uprooted. Wild sea waves spewing out the foam of their shame, and wayward stars for whom the utter depths of eternal darkness have been reserved. This is not something you would want to write on your Mother's Day card. These are not good people, right? Now, Enoch, the seventh in descent, beginning with Adam, even prophesied of them, saying, Look, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict every person of all their thoroughly ungodly deeds that have, they've committed and all the harsh words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people, that is the ones that Enoch prophesied about in verse 14, are grumblers. They are fault finders who go wherever their desires lead them and they give bombastic speeches enchanting folks for their own gain. Whew. Let's unpack this text. And we need to start there at verse 11. And he starts with woe. That's a common word. We see it frequently in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. It was a pronouncement of judgment on those that had forsaken God. Uh, think of Habakkuk 6. It says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. I love the word imagery there. To be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off my peoples. You have not will, but you have forfeited your life. So the pronouncement has been declared. And again, the text says, Woe to you. This isn't some mild reproach. It's not a slight warning or an empty threat. No, it's a declaration of damnation to hell to you is actually what the woe means. This is loaded. <laughs> Jude is sparing no punches. He understands the gravity, the seriousness of the false teachers and what it's doing to the church. And again, it's not unwarranted. 
Because as we see here in verse 11, they're doing three things. They're traveling down. Now, they're the ones doing this. They're traveling down Cain's path. They're abandoning themselves in Balaam's error. And they have joined Korah's rebellion. Now, who are these people? What did they do? How did the Jewish writings understand them? And what is Jew doing with them? So we have several questions to answer. So that's back up. And let's look at, first of all, Let's look at Cain. Who is Cain? Well, most likely he was the firstborn of Adam and Eve, mentioned in Genesis 4. He was known for farming, the son of Adam. But what did he do? What was the situation? If you remember, it was an issue about sacrifice. Abel, his brother, brought the firstborn of his flock. He brings Bobo, and Bobo is pretty. Firstborn, right? Cain did not sacrifice an animal. Instead, he brings the vegan option of fruits and vegetables. Three problems with Cain's sacrifice. Number one, God made it clear the only way for forgiveness is through the shedding of blood. He made that very clear when he killed animals and provided for Adam and Eve. So he said, no, no, no. So first sin here with Cain's sacrifice is that he failed to understand that blood needed to be shed, not juice from mangoes. It doesn't work. Second, it wasn't the, the best of his cultivated labor. According to the text, he didn't give the best. He saved back the, the nicest red delicious apples were in a basket in his storage room. They weren't given to the Lord. So that's a second problem. And third, it was not done out of faith. According to Hebrews, Abel sacrificed out of faith. Implication, Cain did not. And do you remember the consequence? God says, I choose Abel's sacrifice, Cain I don't. And what does Cain do? He kills his brother, the first murder recorded in Scripture. And what's his punishment? Cain can no longer, he's no longer able to cultivate the land. That's his first curse. Second, he's driven from God's presence. And third, he's a marked man with the Lord. He, in other words, he's a man without a God. Wow. And how then is Cain viewed through Scripture and in Jewish writings between the Old and the New Testament? He's seen as a narcissist. He's seen as self-absorbed. He's seen as a militant. He's greedy. And he's called a friend of the devil. Notice what John 3 says about Cain. We would not be like Cain, who was one of the evil ones that murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were were righteous. And Jude, what is he saying that these false teachers, he knows he says they follow the, the path of Cain or the, the way of Cain. He's referring to their conduct. They've got a religion, these false teachers, but it's without faith. It's, it lacks righteousness and good deeds. And ultimately, it's out of pride that we see, just like Cain, that they seek to establish their own righteousness and their own set of guidelines. Right? That's the problem with Cain. Oh, he was religious. He was offering up a sacrifice. But he wasn't going to do it God's way. And there lies the problem. The false teachers, oh, they're there at the love feast. I mean, they brought the baklava. It's sitting there. But they'll do it their way, not God's way. And there is, again, the problem. And that's why they're following the way of Cain. Being religious is not what Christianity is about. Many people are religious. 
Being devout is not what the Lord requires. Even the Israelites, remember, they, they offered the correct sacrifice. And what does the Lord state in Hosea 6.6? 6? For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's a problem with Martha. I mean, she's serving away and hostess of the mostest there in Luke's gospel. And she missed that she needs to have a heart for the Lord and it cannot be distracted. And that's the trouble here. And so first he says, Jude says of the false teachers that they follow the way of Cain. But he's not done. He gives us another analogy and he says, they abandon themselves to Balaam's heir. Now who is Balaam? Well, he was a well-known diviner who lived in Pethor. That was the city of Carchemish. You don't need to know all that, but it's mentioned in Numbers 22. In other words, he's a Gentile. And if you remember, the king of Moab, Balak, wants this prophet named Balaam to come curse Israel. And Balaam says, well, the price is right. I'll do what you want. But God intervenes and says, Balaam, don't you dare. In fact, what happens is Balaam blesses Israel and he curses Moab. That is not good for future employment, right? You're hired by the person that you're cursing. Not good. And later though, so right now you think, oh, well, Balaam's a great guy. He's got it together. And yet when you read in Numbers 25, Balaam realizes <clears throat> he has another way to curse. He says to to Balak, the king of Moab, hey, I got another way to undo the Israelites. And I will encourage them to marry foreigners, commit adultery, but worse is idolatry. And that's exactly what he does. And he's very successful. So how is he viewed? Jewish, Jewish literature understood Balaam to be guilty of encouraging disobedience among the Israelites and intermarriage and an idol worship. He's labeled a godless man who is accursed. In later rabbinic writings, now these are later than the New Testament, but it's interesting, they view Balaam as an ideal symbol of the perceived Gentile evils of immorality, idolatry, and sorcery. Balaam's mentioned three times in the New Testament. Second Peter, a text we looked at before, here in Jude, and in Revelation, in Christ's warnings to the church at Pergamum, and each one of those, the church is being accused or being warned, do not follow the way of Balaam. In other words, he is not a good guy. He is one of error that's seeking to corrupt the church and doing it in such a subtle way. And so Jude says of the false teachers that are in the camp, they follow the path of Cain. They join in the, this rebellion, so to speak, of, of or join in the heir of Balaam. And the third is they join in the rebellion of Korah. Now, who is Korah? There are several Korahs mentioned in the Old Testament. But the one that we know and most likely is being referred to here is the cousin to Moses and Aaron. He's a relative. Do you remember what he did in number 16? He pulls together 250 leaders among the Jews and said, you know what? We really don't like Moses anymore. We need to be in charge. What's happening? Trying to undo, undermine what God has established. 
the same problem with the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, the same problems with the angels that fell, same problem. We just keep seeing this pattern, don't we? And so they reject God's appointed leader, Moses, and they create a rebellion, and God opens up the earth literally and swallows them. Their death was a warning. Don't rebel against God in Numbers 26. In fact, the Lord will wipe out Korah's name and he will eliminate all of his sons. There is no one to carry on his legacy. He's done. Wipe him from the books. Why? Because Korah is seen as jealous, arrogant, discontent. One Jewish writing says he's a very effective communicator, but it's with destruction in mind. And that's exactly what happens here. So you're getting this idea, aren't you? That through these various Old Testament characters, these infamous ones, <laughs> Jude is trying to paint a picture for us of the false teachers. Cain becomes a pattern of sin. Balaam is one who, who sought ministry through personal gain and corrupted through immorality. Korah sought to distort the message of the gospel and refused to submit to the Lord's authority. Well, Jude isn't done. He's painted these three pictures for us or analogies back to the Old Testament. Now he's going to take six images to highlight who these men really are. It's interesting. He did this earlier in, in verses 5 through 7 where he paints the picture connection with the Old Testament individuals and then he describes who they are. He's doing that again. And notice these six references. He says, first of all, they are dangerous reefs at your love feast. They're dangerous, these reefs, because it's their actions, their rhetoric, they're not immediately apparent. It's, it, it's, it's what ships are going to crash into if they're not careful. And he says, they're at your love feast. And I, I, we know in the early church that often at communion, they also had a dinner. And I think this is what he's referring to, is these times of fellowship. Let's think about it. This should be a time where you're loving on one another and pointing each other to Christ. And yet they have ulterior motives, don't they? The reason they bought, brought the baklava is so they could win a vote. So that you might be indebted to them. And the danger is that it could be too late. Look at verse 4 of Jude. He warns, this is why he, he changed course in writing the book. He said, for certain men have secretly slipped in among you, men who long ago were marked out for condemnation. He says, they've not come in with a billboard, neon lights, here we are. No, 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 it's extremely subtle. Extremely subtle. I was reading Captain John Skipper's tips for navigating through coral reefs this week. It was most enlightening. He gives you three reasons or three things to avoid. He says, do not trust your GPS or chart, charter diagrams. He says, stick to eye navigation. Interesting. I thought about that analogy with the church. There is a grave danger when assuming that, well, they're on TV. That, that guy has written a ton of books or, you know, they have a large church. They must be solid Oh, be careful. Your eyes must be discerning to the things 
that are being taught. That's what Jude is saying. Look out, church. You're not exempt. Be careful. Captain John Skipper also states, check your approximate compass courses through the coral. Look at your compass. Be in tune with your compass. And we must be in the word of God in order to navigate these perilous waters that we are in. Finally, he says, keep clear if you see dark brown or black spotches in, or botches in the water. Okay, thank you, Mr. Skipper John. But he was saying that in those dark spots, the coral reefs could be just two foot underwater. In other words, stay clear. And Jude is saying, stay clear of these individuals. Be on guard. They are dangerous. And he says, they are these hidden reefs. He also states of these individuals, he goes, they are self-serving shepherds. They look only to feed themselves. It's, it's what the Lord accused the Jewish leaders of in Ezekiel. He says, you've not shepherded my flock. I will be their shepherd. You, you've not cared for them. It's, it's all out of greed that you've taken this position. And we've had too many people leading in the church who the motive is greed. I remember hearing this story about a, a, an individual who was asked to play the piano in church. And she goes, yes, I finally have power. <laughs> I'm not sure why 88 keys gives you power, but okay, thank you. But it lurks. Self-serving shepherds, they use and abuse people for their own personal gain. Don't you love it? When the Lord speaks, he says, I am the good shepherd. I care for my flock. And Peter, as we looked at, was an exhortation to the church leaders to be shepherds, just like the master shepherd. He also says of this group, they are waterless clouds. You might say they're just full of hot air. <laughs> The false teachers are useless and influenced by false doctrine. Proverbs 25, 14 declares, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts he does not give. <laughs> I love that. You know, it says here, they're waterless clouds carried by the winds. If you live in Israel, especially down by the Dead Sea, where you get less than an inch of water in a year, when you see the clouds, you are hoping for rain. It's important. And Deuteronomy 32, 2 says, My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew. Wow. But not like the false teachers. The false teachers, you're expecting this rain. You're hoping for this rain. And it just goes right on by because there's nothing there. And Proverbs 25 says it well. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts he does not give. He also states, Jude states, they're not only waterless clouds, but they are autumn trees without fruit, twice dead and uprooted. Autumn trees make sense. You expected by this point that there would be apples on the tree and there's no apples and autumn has come and they've yet to produce and you would have expected that. So you're saying this is an off year. Do we need to chop the sucker down? I mean, it still produces shade, so we'll keep it. The problem with these is they're twice dead and uprooted, so they're not even shade they're providing. So chop the sucker down. Use it for firewood. It's useless. 
The twice dead, scholars have debated, what in the world does that mean? Some have said it's referring to this life they're dead and they will be dead, separated from God in all eternity. Possible. There's others who argue, no, it's the so-called profession. They once were dead, made this profession they're following after the Lord. Really, they're not. They are apostates. They have fallen away. And thus means they're dead. I, I think the third view is simply, it accentuates they are completely dead. I think of Miracle Max and Princess Bride, to quote a theologian. He says, there's, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, with all dead, there's only one good use for them. That's to bury them, right? You know? Miracle Max may not be right on a lot of things, but he's right on this one, right? They're dead, not almost dead. And that's the idea here. There's, there's nothing they can provide. What a contrast to Psalm 1-3. It says that the, the righteous man and woman is like a tree planted by flowing streams. It yields its fruit at the proper time. I mean, I love this, that there are autumn trees without fruit. You would expect it fruit at this point. And its leaves never fall off. That's the righteous person. Unlike these false teachers Though they look grandiose, but they're dead. We've got an ash tree in our backyard, and every year another limb seems to die, and you can see the ash bores in it. It's just a matter of time. It, it doesn't provide anything, you know? It, it's, it's dead. And these false teachers have crept in. They have what appear to offer much. I belong to the Society of Biblical Literature, which I'm probably going to withdraw my membership soon. <laughs> it is the land of crazies. You see these theologians writing on things that are just absolutely heretical. And these are Bible teachers, religious professors throughout the United States. They're long past whether Jesus died for only the elect. That's not even a question. Or, or that it's substitutionary atonement. I didn't care less about that. They're questioning whether Jesus ever existed. And they're in the camp. They're dead. Chop them down. They're useless. Notice what he says as well. He says, wild sea waves spewing out the foam of their shame. It's untamable. It's uncontrollable. They can't help themselves. You stand on the on a, during a storm, and if you go to the shoreline afterwards, you see all this junk, this dead stuff being brought up. That's this idea. These, these heretics are flaunting their evil actions. Isaiah 57, 20. But the wicked are like a surging sea that is unable to be quiet. Its waves toss up mud and sand. Wow. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a document as well that talks about that the religious the false religious leaders are like these sea waves that only bring scum. John Calvin in his commentary writes, they breathed out or rather cast out the scum of high-flown stuff of words and grandiloquent or grandiose type style. They used the, the big words to impress. But they says they brought up nothing that is spiritual. On the contrary, what they have done is made men stupid, brute animals. <laughs> That's what they do. There's nothing here. They're like Cain. They're like Balaam. They're like Korah. You don't want to follow these folks. 
And finally, he says they're wayward stars. They're unreliable. You, 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 it's not like the North Star or these stars that you can follow in navigation. No, 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 no. These are these falling stars that, you know, they're, they're there at the moment and then they're gone. These six descriptors, hidden reefs, self-serving shepherds, waterless clouds, headless or rootless <laughs> trees, uh, wild sea waves, and wayward stars paint a very vivid picture of the danger and the uselessness of the false teachers. The danger lurks. It lurked back in Jude's day. It lurks today. We shouldn't be surprised, right, O church? <laughs> the church is the most important organization in the world. It's the bride of Christ. Thus, it is and will be a huge target for every demonic force. Jesus knew this. But the good news, what did he promise to the church? The gates of hell will not even prevail against it. Good news, the church is right where she is supposed to be. You say, well, yeah, but we're falling short as members of the church. That's true, big C. There's a lot the church could be doing. But she's the bride of Christ. She is hers. And he will preserve it. He has plans for her. But the dangers lurk. And we need to be on guard it's a reminder that we need to be students of the word, ever watching. John Collins writes, I will give you this as a most certain observation that there never was anything of false doctrine brought into the church or anything of false worship imposed upon the church, but either it was neglecting the scriptures or by introducing something above the scriptures. May we as a church never veer from the word of God. If so, close the doors. Write a kabod across it and we'll go on our merry way. We need to hold fast to the scriptures. We need to teach them. And I'm so grateful for those involved in the children's ministry with the Truth 78 material we use, getting them in the word for our teens and the Bible studies they have for the adults and the Bible studies that are going on. It's fantastic. We need to be able to ascertain what is true so that when the teachers come and they will and are, we need to be ready because they are subtle, as the text tells us. Well, Jude is not done. He then looks to, to he then kind of shifts like he did earlier. He's looked at these analogies, starts to describe them, and he goes on to describe these individuals by referring to an, uh, something outside of Scripture, and that is, here refers to Enoch. Now, I know Enoch's mentioned in the Bible. We'll get to that in a minute. But he's the seventh, he tells us in verse 14, in descent, beginning with Adam. That's something that's found in extra-Jewish writings, that, that Enoch is the seventh generation. But first, before we dive into that, who is Enoch? Well, Genesis 5 tells us that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Wow. This guy was so righteous, and, and it was in tune with the things of the Lord that the Lord just said, okay, taking you up. <laughs> what a contrast, right? What a contrast to these, this generation that has fallen. And Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Wow. And Enoch, we see here, is the seventh in descent. 
Seven is a term that's used of completion. It's used of perfection. When Luke gives Jesus' genealogy, he gives us all the way back to Adam, and it's 77. There was an understanding that one like Enoch would come in some Jewish writings. The, the seventh one who would be the Messiah, who would bring us into a new creation, a new exodus, a new all of this. And so this is kind of the, this backdrop. But certainly it indicates perfection. And Enoch, we're told, prophesied to these unholy ones. And he says, look, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of his holy ones the, the use of Lord here, by the way, speaks of Christ's divine role. Don't miss that in the future. But he says Christ is coming back for two reasons. And he gives us this in the text. One is to judge. <laughs> Note the thoroughness of the judging. Did you uh, circle all the words of all, right? Judge of all, to convict every person of all their deeds. And, and it's not just what they did, but also all that they say. Sadly, there's a world out there that think they're exempt, that they'll never be held accountable. But we serve a sovereign God who is holy, who is just, and he will serve as judge. He will vindicate his righteousness, and he, it, it will occur. Psalm, I think of Psalm 94. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. Well, there's a day coming. It is coming. And remember the false teachers in Second Peter, and even in Jude, are poo-pooing these things. Oh, these end times eschatology. You know, that's just conspiracy theory. You really can't buy into that stuff. And Jude, and Peter, and elsewhere in the New Testament. Say, oh no, <laughs> there's a day coming. And he's going to judge, and it says in the text, he's also going to convict. Ungodly occurs four times in this text. I love Warren Wiersbe. He, he makes this comment, there will be a judge, Jesus Christ, John 5, but no jury. There will be prosecution, but no defense. According to Revelation, every mouth, or excuse me, Romans 3, every mouth will be stopped up. Tired of the excuses. <laughs> it's judgment day. There will be a sentence, but no appeal. There will be no higher court. The entire procedure will be just. That's what we see here in Jude. And notice, notice what the text says. And all the harsh words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Wow. It, this is personal <laughs> with God Almighty. It's him. It is the Lord that they have spoken ill of and God will judge. Cain thought he could do his own thing. Balaam thought he could do his own thing. Korah as well. And the Lord says, no. You cannot disregard my ways and who I am and think you're going to get away with it. Verse 4 again. They have denied the master who bought them. That is Jesus Christ. And so what is the sinless and the godly? They're described in verse 16. It says they are grumblers. I love that term. In the Greek, it's namanamapia. It's just, they're, they're grumbling. They've got this, this ongoing murmuring. And I'll tell you, grumbling 
in Scripture is not tolerated. It's, it's one of the major sins laid at the feet of the Israelites in the Exodus. You constantly grumbled. The term is used, well, the Greek translation, this term is used of the Hebrew, of Korah's rebellion. You grumbled against Moses, the leader that I have appointed, God said. You grumble, you grumble. Grumbling isn't a little sin. No, 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 no. We had some friends who, who had a, a pond, and the pond scum was coming up, and they thought they would treat the, the pond. Well, they put too much chemical in. He said it wasn't a lot, but it was too much. And so the next morning, there were dead fish everywhere. You can only imagine. It's a little like grumbling. It's subtle, but it destroys relationships. It rejects ministry. It forgets grace. It questions the Lord, and it will produce rebellion. It is contentment, not grumbling, that is the soil of courageous acts of faith. One pastor wrote, if Christians spent as much time praying as grumbling, they would soon have nothing to grumble about. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, we'll move on. Yes, but grumbling, he says, is one of your problems. Another is you are fault finders or you're, you're malcontents. It goes hand in hand with complaining, doesn't it? It's a critical spirit. It's an attitude that, that, that seeks to find the weakness in others. Why? So you ultimately can look good. <laughs> Such behavior is driven from the eyes. Or it's, it's not tolerated. You see here, the false, the false teachers lack that self-control. They are driven by their desires for wickedness. And then ultimately, it's what's enslaving them. As the text tells us, their desires lead them. They've become enslaved to them. And then finally, they're orators of bombastic speeches. One translation renders this, they are loudmouth boasters. <laughs> they're known for arrogance. They're known for blasphemy. They engage in this bombastic speech in order to impress. I've taught with some of those. <laughs> They love to throw out the flowery words and their hooks to, to look like, ooh, how intelligent I am. Careful. Be on guard. They're enchanting folks for their own gain is the idea here. Ultimately, notice it's speech. Uh, he, he mentions their deeds in verse 15, but he hones in on speech in verse 16. I can't help but think of Isaiah when he sees the Lord high and lifted up. What does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. The false teachers, you know, what flows from the heart comes out of the mouth, right? And that's what we see here. Well, talk about going from bad to badder. Uh, we see that, don't we, here in Jude? The good news is next week, he's going to highlight some very positive things. And, and I, I thought, as we look at these, this diabolic trio, well, two of those diabolic trios, what is, what is it that we want to be? Obviously, we're not, Lord willing, we won't embrace their teaching, but what, what should our lives reflect? And so I've given a few there in your notes. The first of these is we need to have a life that's marked by passion for Christ and his word. The Puritan writer Thomas Brooks says, God loves adverbs better than nouns, not praying only, but praying well. Not doing good, but doing it well. <laughs> Psalm 19, referring to scriptures, it says, 
This brings us greater delight than honey, even the sweetest, sweetest honey from a honeycomb. That's God's word. We need to have a life that's passionate about Christ and passionate about word. It, it serves as a buffer. It, 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 it keeps our eyes on what, is, what needs to be rather than being distracted by the things of this world. Secondly, a life that's willing to submit to God's authority. Sadly, we have too many men and women joining Frank Sinatra and singing, I did it my way. <laughs> that doesn't work here. The problem with Cain, Balaam, and Korah was that their refusal to adhere to the ordinances and laws established by the Lord. And I think about it, either one submits to an all-knowing, all-loving God, or one will reap the consequences of rebellion. There, there's no middle ground. You're not going to get before the throne room of God, the judgment seat, and say, you know what? Let's talk about this. You don't understand my upbringing, or you don't understand what I went through. <laughs> it's like in a wash. Third thing that, as you look at the contrast between the false teachers and, and, and the lives that we need to emulate, we need to have a life that's transparent. That's not the case with these false teachers. They do everything in secret. James 1.12, happy is the one who endures testing because when he is proven to be genuine, he will receive the crown of life. That's that transparency. Here's another. This was a little more ouchy. That is a life that's marked by contentment. Think about it. We have so much, don't we? And yet, it's so easy to stand in front of a closet and say, that's full of clothes and say, I, I don't have anything to wear. <laughs> Ooh. Or, or, or go to the refrigerator and it's packed jam full of food and you say, I don't know what to eat. Even addressing the weather. Or a life full of meaning and purpose and we grumble that we are way too busy. I stand guilty. Luke 6 says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We want a life without obstacles. Kids that are self-parenting. <laughs> life without any need to trust God or seeking life in creation rather than in the creator. We are called to rest in the presence of the Lord, looking to his power and awareness of his grace. Second Corinthians 12, therefore I'm content with weakness, with insults, with troubles, with persecutions and difficulties. This is Paul talking. He's been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, you name it, stoned. He says, all of this for the sake of Christ? Ah. I'll, I'll be content. For whenever I'm weak, I am strong. And so a life that's marked by contentment. Here's another. A life that is pure and holy. Living in courts again with God's standards. And finally, a life that points others to Christ. Unlike the false teachers who denied our only master and Lord Jesus, we need to be individuals who glorify our only master and Lord Never in U.S. history, I would argue, has the church been attacked so much from the outside and faced such blatant disregard for orthodoxy from within. But when you think about it, those are exciting opportunities. It was Martin Luther who stated that the church is at the worst state when it's most at peace. It's the best state when Satan assaileth it on every side. And that is the day in which we live.
Stand fast, O church. Be on guard. Jude is understanding the, the peril that we live in. If you don't know Christ as your Savior today, today is the day. Yield your life to the one who came and died on a cross and provided salvation, forgiveness of sins. There's a lot of rhetoric out there that says, no, you can just live life your way. No, you cannot. Christ has come and paid that price and has given you an opportunity to have a restored relationship with God Almighty. So, O oh church, may the words of Jude this morning strengthen our resolve to stand for truth, increase our awareness of the dangers that reside with ungodly teachers and leaders, spur us on to live lives that glorify Christ, and remind us of the glorious future that awaits when our sovereign Lord will return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Jude. It's, it's tough territory to cover. It's serious stuff. And on Mother's Day, we want the flowers, the balloons, and the gifts. And yet we, we step back and we realize, no, no, no. We're, we're in a spiritual battle here. <laughs> we mustn't forget that. Satan is alive and well. He would love to see the church destroyed. And he has very ta various tactics, but one of the most potent one is to allow false teachers to creep within the camp. And Jude knew that. And that's why Jude gives this warning to us as believers. Stand fast, he declares. Look out. Don't, be, don't underestimate the enemy. Lord, give us the strength to do that. Thank you for the opportunity we have to live in this day and age where it's becoming clearer and clearer what is true and what is not. Lord, give us the boldness to speak truth and to do it in love. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.